Inspiration4, watching the launch, and can we call them astronauts? You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The crew of Inspiration4 is safely here on the ground after spending three days in low Earth orbit. It was the first all-civilian space mission, launching on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center. Inside their Crew Dragon capsule, the crew flew higher than the International Space Station and Hubble Space Telescope. But before they launched, the mission was gaining lots of buzz. A Netflix documentary followed the crew during training, and people came to Florida's Space Coast to watch this historic mission launch off the planet. We'll hear from some of those people that came out to cheer on Inspiration4 and ask them what made them turn to the sky and watch these four launch into space. Then, is the crew astronauts? It's a complex question. We'll chat with a spaceflight historian and retired NASA astronaut about what it takes to be called an astronaut and if this crew meets that definition. Looking back at Inspiration4's launch and the future of commercial astronauts, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. The crew of four are safely back on the ground after spending three days in orbit. While it was only those four leaving the planet, thousands of people were following the journey either on social media or through a special documentary on Netflix. Space enthusiasts came out to Florida's Space Coast to watch the launch. Are We There Yet's Maria Brasino visited Space View Park in Titusville on launch night to talk with spectators about what brought them out and filed this report. Hi, this is Ozzy Osband. And I'm pretty much the launch host out here at Space View Park in Titusville. It's a public park that overlooks the entire Canaveral spaceport, and I like to consider it the front row of the balcony for a rocket launch. We'll launch at 8.02.56. And things get that precise because that's how spaceflight is around here. So I'm always excited about uh, space, and that too for the, I mean, if it's going to be for the people, like... I'm more excited. So I've been following all the missions, like the Virgin Galactic mission or the Blue Origin, and so I'm so much excited about the inspiration for what Elon Musk is doing. So, I mean, right now it's coming to a level where the general public can access it. But the thing is, you have got to have the money to do that. So that's the barrier. So I'm just hoping at least in the next 10 years to 15 years, so this is going to change and the space travel is going to get cheaper where most of the people can afford it. And we're hoping for that. So that's, that gets me excited and that's the reason I stopped here with my six-month-old baby. <laughs> we just moved here a couple of months ago and um, this is my first time seeing it up close before. We can see it from our house usually, but we wanted to get closer and be able to be there because this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, like the first time ever that four civilians have actually went up without astronauts. But once they come back, they will be astronauts, so <laughs> that's exciting. pretty awesome. Uh, I couldn't feel the rumble from the ground because we're too far away, but you could hear 
hear it, and it, it was an awesome sound. Never heard anything like that. I'll remember this for a long time. The launch was really beautiful. Uh, we had a very good observation point, and I could clearly see the separation and, and the falcon coming down. It, it was really awesome. It is just exactly how I wished for. I'm just really excited that this happened, and that was absolutely amazing to watch. Um, I've been stalking the Countdown show on Netflix, and I thought it was great, and to get to see this happen was the best thing ever. I was practically in tears. <laughs> I'm the launch host out here in Space View Park, and I have just hosted a perfect launch of a Falcon 9 rocket with a uh, Crew 2 Dragon capsule on top. Uh, the four people on board are now in orbit as we speak, and uh, the folks here are going home into a very crowded traffic jam, which always happens after a launch, and, um, but very happy. They saw a, a really perfect launch. That was Ozzy Osbourne, Jacqueline Conrado, Crystal Moore, mother of Aaliyah Drake, Putti, and Rick Vasquez. And that story was produced by Are We There Yet's Maria Brasino. The all-civilian mission was the first of its kind, sending a crew of non-professional astronauts to space and back. So, are they astronauts? It sounds like a simple question, but the answer is complex. And to help answer that question, I reached out to University of Central Florida spaceflight historian Amy Foster. Well, generally, we would describe an astronaut as someone who's flown in space. Uh, what that means, though, uh, is is a little bit different based on the situation. Um, you, when the United States first started sending astronauts into space. It was part of uh, NASA's Mercury program. Um, these were men, all men initially, who were selected because of their test pilot experience and their flying experience, as well as it, in the vast majority of cases, an engineering background. So that there, there's always something that NASA wants in addition to being able to fly in space, but, but to contribute to the program. Um, so scientists and engineers, but first and foremost, test pilots. Um, and so flying in space basically earned you the title of, of astronaut. Um, you know, it, there's with, with each one of those, those men who were selected in that first class of astronauts, the Mercury 7, um, they were all military men. And in, in flying in space, they actually were promoted uh, to the next rank up in the military branch that they were serving in. But as you know, we were starting to define what space meant. And in, in a lot of ways, that was really also about our relationship with the Soviet Union. Where does space begin and airspace end? Foster went on to say President Eisenhower was focused on establishing that definition as a way to move his version of the space program forward by defining quote unquote space the U.S. could use the Soviets' launching of Sputnik into this now-defined space as a way to move Eisenhower's vision of NASA, with a focus on science, forward. Now, if we fly a satellite over the Soviet Union, they can't come back and say, oh no, that's our airspace. So defining that boundary uh, between Earth's atmosphere and space was very much in the mindset of you know, the, the Eisenhower administration. And so that that 
barrier sort of gets defined at around 50 miles. Um, so every astronaut that we sent up that goes up to 50 miles, that's an astronaut. Um, but in addition to what the, the men that's, that NASA was selecting and sending into space, now we have that 50 mile marker and you look at what the Air Force is doing in particular with some of their experimental aircraft, um, the X-15 specifically uh, in the 1960s, that was a jet powered, but also rocket powered aircraft. And so the Air Force's test pilots out at Edwards Air Force Base were actually able to fly that aircraft above that 50 mile mark. And each one of them who did that also were in their astronaut pin. That was you know, something that, that was created as an acknowledgement of, of what they had done. Um, so there are 15 men uh, who are qualified, essentially recognized astronauts for flying the X-15 above that 50 mile mark. Um, as we move forward through the space program um, and who NASA was selecting, who, that, who, who was the ideal astronaut um, also kind of evolved. Um, when we were going to the moon, NASA wanted to be able to send scientists who knew something about geology and being able to collect good samples that would give us some idea of what's happening in, in the solar system. Um, and so NASA selected its first class of scientists astronauts in the 1960s. And uh, Harrison Schmidt, uh, who was aboard Apollo 17, the last Apollo flight, was uh, a geologist. Um, and so it, what we see happening at NASA is that there's that transition from test pilots to more scientific background. So even who was an astronaut was changing. Um, by the 1970s, as a shuttle is getting developed, again, that, that mission of, of NASA is evolving. It's, it's the space race is over. Um, and now we can get back to what Eisenhower had envisioned for the space program and that it was scientific. And so the, the astronaut corps changes in response to that. So with the first class of shuttle astronauts selected in 1978, it was, it was split. There were 35 of them. They called themselves the 35 new guys. Um, and 15 of them were pilots and 20 of them were scientists or engineers or doctors. With that new foundation of what NASA was trying to do with the shuttle program, it was all about the scientists. So it, it's it's somewhat ironic that um, you know what what an astronaut meant in the 1960s was now basically um, the bus driver, you know, to get the scientists into space. They're still all astronauts. Um, they're selected by NASA. They are employed by NASA. They're trained by NASA to do that job. And I think that's what we've come to understand about the concept of, of an astronaut is that this is their profession. That was UCF spaceflight historian Amy Foster. But the Inspiration4 mission wasn't public. It was a private mission. Does that change the way we define astronauts? The conversation continues after the break here on Are We There Yet?
You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. The all-civilian space mission was the first of its kind, but are they astronauts? It sounds like a simple question, but the answer is complex. We heard from UCF historian Amy Foster about the public definition of astronaut, but Inspiration4 was a private mission under the purview of the Federal Aviation Administration. So does that change the way we classify these space flyers? To break that down, we're joined by Garrett Reisman via Zoom. He's a retired NASA astronaut who flew to space on the shuttle and spent about 107 days in orbit. Wow. Okay. That, well, the, you're right. It's not simple. Uh, there's a disagreement about that. There's a lot of different ways to define it. Um, so, you know, historically, it's been defined in the United States as somebody who exceeds a certain altitude. And uh, in other countries, though, it's defined differently. In, in fact, in Russia, it was really interesting. When I went over there, they had a list, uh, a poster of all the space travelers. And the first American on that was not Alan Shepard. It was John Glenn, because they defined it not by an altitude, but by a velocity, a speed. And to them, if you don't achieve orbital velocity, it doesn't count. So they were excluding the suborbital, people that go straight up and straight down like Bezos and Branson's vehicles did and and like Alan Shepard did. So it depends on how you define that or you can define it from a uh, as a profession. You know, if, if you do it as a profession or if you are, uh, uh, are uh, and distinguishing between that and the passengers. So my personal feeling on this is that the it, it really should be defined as Anybody that goes to space, and I'm not hard over if that's an altitude or a velocity, if it has to be orbital or suborbital. And if it is an altitude, what altitude is it? Any altitude we pick is arbitrary. Uh, and, and I love all the bickering between Branson and Bezos about whether or not they were valid because one was one went slightly over an imaginary line and one went slightly under an imaginary line. It's still imaginary. Who cares? The whole thing was silly. Uh, but I guess, it, it, you know, and, and, and I understand the you're trying to sell tickets, right? This is now a commercial endeavor. And these tickets cost a lot of money. And so I understand the marketing. If you if if you can say to somebody that, hey, when you come back, you're going to have the title astronaut. That makes the ticket worth something more, I guess. You know, it makes it more likely that they put down this money because then they could go to cocktail parties and break it. I'm an astronaut, you know. And so from a marketing and sales perspective, I understand what they're doing. But I think it's kind of silly, uh, just to be perfectly honest. When you travel on Southwest Airlines and you sit in seat, you know, 27B and you get to your destination and you walk off that airplane, they don't call you a pilot, (laughs) you know, right? I mean, you're a passenger, okay? Yes, you traveled just as high and just as fast as the two uh, men or women that were operating the controls in the front seat. But you don't get to call yourself a pilot. Uh, just because you achieve that velocity or altitude. Uh, I think it really should be as, as I think the FAA actually is correct. And I know that they're coming up with a rule and it basically says that if you are not meaningfully contributing to the operation of the vehicle, uh, in other words, if you're just a passenger, you're not an astronaut. Okay. But if you are contributing to the, to the operation of the vehicle and you do go into space, then it, I think it's okay to call you an astronaut. So for Jared and and Cyan, who just uh, uh, were the commander and pilot of the Dragon, uh, you know, just this past uh, on this Inspiration Four mission, I think you could call them astronauts. They were they were trained and had the same responsibilities to operate that vehicle that 
that really any of the NASA crews that have gone up to the International Space Station had to do. So they had real job responsibilities. And I think it's okay to call them that. And, and, and then also acknowledge that there, there are astronauts and there are astronauts, <laughs> you know, just like there are pilots who fly a Cessna and they're called a pilot. And there are pilots that fly F-22 fighter planes and they're also called pilots. Okay, they're, 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 so there are different different kinds of pilots. And yes, the, the operate the space shuttle, for example, or the Soyuz requires a lot more training and demands a lot more from the crew than Dragon does. But I still think Jared and Cyan are, pilot, are, are astronauts. They still operated the vehicle just because it was a, a vehicle that's much inherently easier to operate and, and fly like Dragon because it's so much more automated than the Soyuz or the shuttle. It doesn't change the fact that they're still astronauts, in my opinion. Mm. I, I'm still old enough to remember that I could, as a kid, poke into a cockpit and get my wings. So I'm considering myself a pilot from that Delta flight I took when I was seven <laughs> years old. So don't take that away from me, Garrett. But uh, <laughs> you brought up a really good point. And, and, and you can consider yourself a professional astronaut um, or, or, you know, one of these kind of participating astronauts. And, and for you, I know that, that your training to become an astronaut started, you know, far before you joined the astronaut corps at NASA. I mean, tell me a little bit about what goes into, what went into your training as an astronaut and how that's different from this next generation of astronauts. And should there be, um, you know, this designation between the two? Well, there's definitely a difference. And, 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 the, and the difference, it really depends on the vehicle and your role in that vehicle. So training the fly in the shuttle took years of preparation uh training to fly on dragon is really it's it's six months but but it's not like you do it every day during those six months so it's actually a very compressed period of time that you train for dragon and that's and that's the way it should be because there's no way we should make a vehicle that requires so much out of the humans in the loop out of the crew to operate like the shuttle that was designed in the 1970s and our technology when it comes to uh computers uh electronics and software is way better than what we had in the in the in the 70s right so we shouldn't be asking humans to do the kind of things that they demanded us to do in, in the shuttle and it and and it's and it's and and i think it's proper that um it's it, it requires a lot less training a lot less out of the crew to fly and dragon uh, it would be it wouldn't be right to to go back and turn back the clock gotcha that makes sense um from my understanding of the faa rule um to, to become a, a commercial astronaut in the eyes of the FAA, um, you have to be designated crew on the mission. And in this particular mission for Inspiration Four, SpaceX did not designate these four as crew, um, so they were not they would not be eligible for the FAA's definition of, of commercial um, astronauts. Do you think that that should have been the case? I mean, they aren't working on the vehicle; they're merely passengers on the vehicle. Well. So I, I, I'm not sure exactly why they were not designated as crew. It might be because of the nature of the FAA license, um, which which maybe it's a legal technicality. Um, uh, my personal opinion is, you know, I consider uh, the commander and pilot who were trained and do have responsibilities to take mostly, I mean, in event of a contingency dragon. Uh, I could I could tell you from my time at SpaceX, I know it's designed to on a good day, go all the way up to the space station, all the way back down with, with the crew having to do very, very little. Um, 
and and really anything the crew would have to do could be done by the ground. So like one example is arming the the Super Draco launch escape system on the pad is a crew responsibility because you want them to look around, and make sure everybody's got their seatbelt on before they push the button. OK, that's that's why. But the ground could do it. All right. So there's really very, very little or nothing that you need the crew to actually do if everything works. But uh, Jared and Cyan were trained um, how to handle things if it's having a bad day. What if the machine is breaking down? What if there's an unexpected emergency? What to do if there's a fire? What to do if there's a depress? How to do an emergency deorbit burn? I need to go home now. Now, it's not the same as a shuttle, which was a very intensive process for the crew. There's actually a button on Dragon that says, go home now. Actually, it doesn't quite say that. It says, uh, it, it, but it, does, it is one button that you push to start an automatic sequence that will, will deorbit you. You just got to make sure you push it at the right time so you don't like come down the middle of Manhattan or something. So, uh, so I'm not, there's, there's a role for the crew. It's, not, it's, 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 uh, it's a lot easier than it used to be, but it's still an important role. So I think from a forgetting the, the legal technicalities and splitting hairs, I'd say from that perspective, for the intent of the FAA role, I think uh, Jared and Cyan should be awarded their astronaut wings. But let me also take a step back and caveat all this, which is that who cares? <laughs> you know, it's like it's like, uh, you know, it's it's um, it seems to me that uh, whether you call them astronauts or spaceflight participants or whatever, they're still getting to go into space on a rocket and look it out, seeing the Earth at that incredible window. It doesn't change one iota the, or anything uh, about the experience itself. So if, 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 if I were Jared and I, I, I would, I wouldn't care, frankly, I, it, it wouldn't phase me in the least. Uh, I think he's still going to have a great story to tell at cocktail parties and he doesn't need the, uh, you know, the honorific to go along with it. <laughs> I was going to ask you that and, and I, I didn't want to take away from your profession at all or for what you've done, but really how important is it? And I think you answered that, but you also brought up a really interesting point that, you know, you can hit that button, that go home now button, and that that vehicle can can land anywhere. There are certain designations that you get as an astronaut under, you know, uh, certain international treaties that have been signed. You know, does that make it so important to figure out? Does this person have the the legal definition of astronaut if they land in some place that's maybe not so friendly to the U.S.? Could that be important? I don't, I don't think I think the importance there is more from, uh, uh, you know, I think that's that, you know, make sure you take your passport with you <laughs> so that if you do come down somewhere, uh, you can say you're a U.S. citizen and, and uh, you can get home. But um, now I don't think from, a, you know, from a legal, the, the bigger ramifications, I think if, if there is an emergency and you have to come home and you don't come home in uh waters you know immediately uh, along the united states then somebody's got to come get you uh and then there's they're gonna they might want uh, reimbursement for that uh, uh they might be more or less willing to go do that depending how friendly that country is and then there's a question of what happens to the spacecraft you know there's uh, export control laws that say that that technology can't go certain places and uh how do you control that if it's an emergency and you're splashing down in the middle of the ocean you know, as as more of these missions come online, we we know SpaceX has another one of these you know private missions coming up. Um, there's going to be more and more suborbital flights from Blue Origin, from Virgin Galactic, other other companies. 
do you think that we're going to have to have the conversation and figure out what the designation is? Because right now it's, it's pretty ambiguous. Um, you know, there's the FAA and then whatever the media decides to call them. Uh, you know, do, do we have to really narrow down what these definitions are as more and more people get the opportunity to go to space? I think just over time, this will become trivial and there'll be something that we call them and it'll make sense to everybody. And, um, you know, I, I, today we we uh, we refer to airline pilots as pilots and we have a desert. We do designate, for example, the, there is a difference between a commercial pilot, somebody who does it for a living and a recreational pilot or a private pilot. Um, when I fly around and, and, and I have a small airplane, I fly around, I'm a private pilot. If I do flight instruction in that airplane, which I can do, then I'm a commercial pilot. Uh, and if I fly an airliner, which I can't do, uh, then I'm an airline transport pilot. So there, there are different levels of pilots. And maybe we'll get to the point where there's an accepted taxonomy for astronauts. There could be private astronauts, just like there are private pilots. There could be commercial astronauts uh, or professional astronauts. You know, we could have different uh, modifiers to the word astronaut. Um, but again, I think as long as you're as long as you have a job to do uh, and as long as you're trained to do that job and, and have a function other than just putting your seatbelt on and knowing where the emergency exits are located and how to fold up the tray table in front of you, then I think I think it's fine to call yourself an astronaut. I think if you walked into a flight deck on a commercial plane with that flight jacket, they'd let you fly the plane, Garrett. I think you'd. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's a long story. It happened to me once in Venezuela, but never oh, really? in the United States. <laughs> well, I'll have to hear that story when we have more time. But uh, so okay. you've already told me, um, Simon Proctor and, and Jared Isaacman, you think they get the designation of astronauts. What about what about Chris and Haley? What should we call them on this mission? Wow. Um, you see, I think I think there's some gray area there, and I think it's it's their 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 role uh, during the flight of Dragon. They do have to take care of their own personal equipment in the case of an emergency. If there's a fire, they need to know how to put on their gas mask. And if they need to know how to get in and out of their spacesuit and how in an emergency to deploy a life raft, for example, and stuff like that. So they have certain responsibilities, but those responsibilities are, are more in line with the type of training and responsibilities that, that people that fly on New Shepard or, or in the back of uh, the Virgin Galactic space plane uh, have to do. So I think there should be some designation for people that fall into that category, um, it might be something a little bit more than passenger. Although, you, really, when you're a passenger on a commercial airliner, if you're sitting in that exit row, you got to read that card and know how to open that door, right? So, you know, I, I think it's something closer to passenger, though, rather than astronaut. To be to be frank, going back to my sitting in seat, you know, twelve B analogy <laughs> that I used before. That was retired NASA astronaut Garrett Reisman. He's also the co-host of his own podcast called Two Funny Astronauts. Check it out wherever you get this show or visit twofunnyastronauts.com, and that's the number two. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit wmfe.org slash yet. Are We There? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's intern is Maria Brasino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Make a contribution to this show online at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>